to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you here once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Liza Miller. She's the Vice President of Knowledge at Echoing Green, which sounds so interesting. So Liza, welcome to the pod. And what is the Vice President of Knowledge? Hi. Well, knowledge at Echoing Green means systems development, measurement strategies, and leading on our learning agenda. So over the last 10 years that I've been at Echoing Green, we've evolved from trying to do everything in spreadsheets to doing them more proactively in systems, then aligning our sort of theory of change and our measurement priorities with those systems, and then using all the data that comes out of those systems to learn about how our programs are going and try to improve them. Oh, you know what? We're going to have to have you come back on the pod and talk all about that because I can geek out about knowledge management, technology systems, and like predictive analytics. So exciting. But today we're going to be talking about something completely different. So before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and how you ended up at Echoing Green? Yeah. So like I said, I've been at Echoing Green for about 10 years and I was originally hired in a consultant role to quote unquote fix Salesforce. So back to sort of like geeking out about systems and knowledge management. I feel like there's a lot of accidental techies out there who ended up in jobs fixing Salesforce. And what it turned into was not just Salesforce, but actually thinking more broadly about how an organization that had at that point been around for more than 20 years was thinking about data and information in new ways. I have a sort of varied career in that I kind of started out in the nonprofit sector, went over to documentary filmmaking for a while, and then came back to the nonprofits. But the through line of my career is really just how do you take a lot of information in nonprofits, sometimes it's data, sometimes it's stories. In the film world, I was doing a lot of transcription and we were we were laughing about time logging before. And how do you turn that into something that you can actually use and act on, learn from, and maybe teach others as well? And so at Echoing Green, that's been a similar evolution going from getting spreadsheets into a system to making that system work better with the organization strategy, and then taking all the information that comes out of those systems, improving our programs with it. And then today, that kind of means taking that learning outside the organization and informing the way we talk to the broader field. Got it. Again, we're going to have to have another conversation about telling stories with data because that is like my personal passion in life. But for the folks out there who are listening who aren't familiar with Echoing Green, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you all are doing? Yeah. So Echoing Green invests in transformational leaders. So our flagship program, what we're known best for, is the Echoing Green Fellowship, which is a two-year fellowship that is awarded to a select number of social entrepreneurs each year. These social entrepreneurs are from around the globe. They're very, very early stage. Echoing Green's often one of their first funders, and they are starting innovative social enterprises to solve problems in their communities with the potential to solve them more broadly as well, sometimes on a global scale. We also have realized over our more than 30 years of operating that just investing in individual leaders and providing them seed capital isn't enough. So we've developed 
a suite of support programs that help those leaders develop themselves into the kinds of leaders that can scale these organizations, as well as we're starting to look beyond our portfolio itself and into the broader field and say, how can we help stand up an ecosystem of support around these entrepreneurs so that when they leave the fellowship or when they leave their next funder, they're operating in a social impact ecosystem that is accepting of them and their ideas. And so when you say social entrepreneurship, are we talking about both for-profit and nonprofit ventures? We are, yes. When Echoing Green started in 1987, Primarily, social enterprises still define themselves as nonprofits. It, over the last few decades, has gone through several sort of waves of iteration. We saw the rise of hybrids in the sort of mid-aughts. And today we're seeing Echoing Green in its completely open application process. Anybody can submit an application. We're seeing about 50% of our applications come from nonprofits and about 50% come from hybrids and for-profits. This is probably a larger philosophical question, but I've always been somewhat of the opinion and and certainly over my decade long in nonprofit have solidified this opinion that the philanthropic model of nonprofit is inherently unsustainable and designed to perpetuate cycles of power inequities. And I'm just curious, like, what would you, would you agree with that statement? Personally, yes. I think from an echoing green perspective, we believe that a the the best model for a particular leader's impact is the best model that's for that impact. Right. And that's why we've never said, okay, we're only going to fund nonprofits mm-hmm. or we're only going to fund hybrids or we're only going to fund for-profits. We deeply believe in placing a lot of trust in innovators and in leaders who understand deeply the both the challenges and the opportunities in their communities. Personally, and I think this leads into some of the research that Echoing Green is doing right now, is that there's a lot of philanthropy that's kind of broken. And you alluded to it with it sort of feeling unsustainable and it being consolidation of power. And that is really what's happening today. There are billions of dollars that are locked up inside philanthropic institutions or philanthropic arms of corporations that are not flowing into communities where there are leaders like our fellows and many others who have ideas to advance social progress, to advance equity, to advance economic sustainability for the residents of those places. And so when you look at some of the challenges of philanthropy today, it's not only that that money's not flowing, it's that it's not flowing equitably either. And so there's a consolidation of wealth and power in the sector that honestly just needs to change. So let's talk about that a little bit. So I know that the basis of this entire conversation was that Echoing Green is about to release a study about the disparity uh, that entrepreneurs of color have to accessing capital. Tell me a little bit about that study. Yeah. So Echoing Green, I, I mentioned, runs this open application process for our fellowship. And every year we get between two and 3,000 applications for about 25 to 30 spots in our portfolio. So that means that we're picking only about 1% of who applies. And what happens through that process is that we are we gather a lot of data about what's happening inside very, very early stage leaders' heads and also gathers what's happening 
in terms of their ability to raise funds for their ideas. Mm -hmm. Like I said, Echoing Green's often someone's first funder, Mm -hmm. but not always. We do have people who apply for the fellowship where their capital needs are much greater. They might be developing technology. They might be running a global organization rather than a local one. And sometimes they've raised a significant amount of money. So across all of those applicants every year, and we've had a pretty consistent application since 2012. So we have this seven-year data set of who's applying, what kinds of ideas are they coming with, and what's the money that they both have already raised, think they need to raise, and what are those, what what kinds of sources does that come from? And so every year we've been published, for the last few years, we've been publishing a report called the State of Social Entrepreneurship that is just looking at how things have changed in the most recent year in our applicant pool. And one of the things that we just couldn't ignore over the years was the grave disparities in access to capital. So if you look at our report from 2019, if you looked at just, and this is just one data point, right? If you look at along gender lines, um, the applicants that identified as Caucasian, European, and white, as well as female, they had a median funds raise of $25,000 less than their male counterparts who noted the same races and ethnicities. Mm -hmm. You take that out to other races, take that out to other demographic characteristics, and those kinds of disparities both sustain and grow. In the same sort of grouping, the African, African African-American, or Black women were only raising half as much money as their Caucasian, European, or white male colleagues. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of numbers, you know, we feel like we've been saying them for a few years. And the opportunity came to us to collaborate on a broader study that was going to be both qualitative and quantitative to illuminate some of this data. Because I think as much as many people in both the philanthropy and nonprofit sectors recognize that there are disparities, there's not been quite as much data-driven research done to actually quantify how big that disparity actually is. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think that is the lived experience of a lot of folks in the field, particularly women of color leading organizations. So it's really interesting that there's now the data to substantiate the anecdotal experience about that. What are some of the reasons? I mean, I have my own guesses as to the reasons, but I'd be curious about the the evidence-based reasons for this. So I think that there's there's the evidence-based reasons and then there's lived experience, like you mentioned. We've been funding diverse cohorts of early stage social entrepreneurs for over 30 years. And we see time and time again, leaders going through the fellowship, developing immensely as leaders, building their personal and professional networks, and basically doing everything right that should be leading to the philanthropic industrial complex investing in them and in their ideas. And we've seen time and time again it not happen. We've seen time and time again leaders leave their organizations, shut down their organizations, or move on and and absorb their organizations into other institutions for a lack Mm -hmm. of resources. And, you know, that really led to Echoing Green building out its programs, but it's also a, a real need for us to call for, for change as well. In the research that we've been doing, in terms, of, in terms of hard evidence base, it's challenging to put real data to it, right? But the research group has done interviews with, I think, now more than 50 leaders of color in the U.S. who are willing to take the time to talk about their challenges fundraising, as well as what they feel like the opportunities in the sector might be. 
And the thing that we heard time and time again is that the perception that it's just that when funding decisions get made, the decisions are not made in favor of people of color and women who are leading impactful organizations is not right. It's It doesn't start with when the funding decision gets made. It actually starts much, much earlier before a leader even makes their first ask. The sort of rough framework that we've developed in terms of how to talk about and think about this um, is that it actually starts with just mm-hmm. getting connected. Leaders of color and women do not have the same kinds of networks or access to networks that other leaders may have, and they may be locked out from being connected with people in seats of power who have decision-making authority around over philanthropic dollars far before they even are making their first ask for Mm -hmm. their organization. That then sort of leads into a time period where you're trying to build relationships with people who do have that power and do have that decision-making authority and feeling locked out of those rooms, feeling like you're either not getting invited to those things or you don't go because you know that that foundation is not funding people who look or sound like you. They're not funding leaders in your community. Then you get to the actual decision-making process and being sort of compared to other leaders in ways that are not fair comparisons because you're facing structural bias to advancing the mission of your organization. And then all the way down to when you try to sustain funding relationships. This is something we heard a lot from leaders who are a little further out in their careers of leading their organizations, that getting renewal grants can be more challenging as a woman or a person of color because you do not have the same degree of trust from that institution. Yeah, all of this really resonates. And I know that the folks out there who are listening who are either folks of color or women or women who are also folks of color, will like this will not come as a surprise in any way. And I also think for myself, having raised money, there's a truism that people give to people and that if there are people who have the capacity to give who don't look like you and may not automatically have that built-in trust because of some kind of commonality, it makes it that much harder. It really does. And this kind of bias, everything from just like the broad strokes of structural bias all the way down to encounters with microaggressions, having to explain and defend your culturally competent approaches to change. All of those things lead to leaders having a different kind of response because they have are experiencing and have kind of internalized in some way that bias. And they're reacting then to how these institutions are approaching them and and working with them in ways that are also then sort of not helping their cause. You know, I sort of mentioned the exclusion from like, let's just say like informal conversations and Mm -hmm. and informal networks that, and we talked to to one of our Queen Green fellows and he's like, yeah, I don't want to go to that cocktail party. I don't know anybody. They're not going to fund me. The amount of work that I would have to do to get connected to that network is not Mm. worth it for me. And then further down the line, it's like, are leaders of color and women, are they negotiating and pushing back less against funder requirements or funder questions or 
new demands being put on them by funders because they've internalized that this bias and that this is just how it works. And so I'm going to accept what I can get rather than fighting for what my peers may be getting because they have a, they've been able to be connected. They've been able to build that rapport. They've been able to secure that support and they've been able to sustain. Yeah. I mean, that's really hitting close to home for me. So I, in my consulting life, I am working with organization and one in particular that is led by a young white male. And I don't know, it's just, it's very interesting because I've been in the field much longer. I've raised money, but the perspective that he comes with, like, well, they told me this, but we should say this. And I'm like, oh, we're allowed to say that? <laughs> like, as a woman of color, to your point, I've been acculturated to just accept what I've been given because I didn't realize I could ask for more. And it, anyway, it's been, it's been a very interesting experience working with him. So Liza, all of these things, I think a lot of folks will feel is true for them. What do we do about it? I mean, it's kind of depressing. I think the first goal of some of the stuff that we're we're writing and planning to publish is put numbers and words to what's really happening. We're really conscious that there have been many articles and many, many studies published about inequity in philanthropy. This is not a new groundbreaking piece. What we hope though is that some of the quantitative analysis that we've been able to do illuminates how stark the problem actually is. And we also want to illuminate how philanthropy in some ways is behind other sectors that have been doing some more intentional thinking about race and gender when it comes to their actual business. I mean, if you think about philanthropy as a business, there's a lot of opportunity for philanthropy to invest in social progress and the kinds of social progress that they have goals and targets to advance. There's opportunity there that's not being capitalized upon because they're not investing in the kinds of leaders who are doing some of the most innovative, most systems changing, potentially most impactful work. Then the third thing is actually about making some specific calls to action. And these are, we're sort of thinking are centered around deliberately and transparently countering interpersonal and systemic biases. It's redefining terms like risk by revisiting assumptions about what's necessary to achieve social impact. And then it's about power. It's about the sharing and seeding and building of power. And there's a lot of ways that that can be done, including ways that may involve working to repair harm. Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about as far as the strategies can be applied in lots of different contexts. So we've heard, certainly had guests on the pod who talk about dismantling racism within their organizations. One aspect that I wanted to touch on is, I mean, I think all of these suggestions make a lot of sense, but as folks in the field and folks who might be social entrepreneurs looking for money, is there anything that we can do given that we're not controlling the funding? That's a really great question. And it's not something that we're really exploring in the study. So I'm kind of switching hats right now and thinking about Echoing Green's role as a funder. So Echoing Green's also a nonprofit. <laughs> We've been a nonprofit for the last 20 years. We raise every dollar that we give away. And in that selection process where we whittle 2,500 applications down to just 25 or 30 every year in how we make our awards and how we build our portfolios, I think that 
what resonates for us as funders and what we look for from our applicants is different from many other funding institutions. I actually just started reading applications last night as a core principle reviewer, and I think it's telling that our first round of, of review is called the core principle review. It's does this person and their idea fit inside the core principles of what Echoing Green funds. We don't see gender. We don't see race. We see a subset of questions and we make sort of very early decisions based on does this person have passion and does this idea have innovation and potential for impact? That's kind of how we approach it. I think when I think about your question and about sort of what one might say to a leader who's facing fundraising challenges, I think belief in oneself goes a long way, noting that there's little that can currently be done to combat some of the structural biases as an individual actor. It is very challenging. And I think both providing for yourself and seeking out support from people and organizations who are going to care for you as much as they're going to care for your idea and your organization is really important. It's something that when we convened a number of our fellows just a couple weeks ago, our fellows, we have a cohort of fellows who's working on black male achievement in the United States. And when we asked them what they needed, they said they needed community and capital. So finding a community of like-minded social entrepreneurs or nonprofit leaders that you can lean on and who can support you and you can support each other as a community is important. Finding those friendly faces who are going to, like I said, care for you as much as they care for your idea. And then as much as you are able in sort of in the way, in what's right for you, keep making the asks, keep pushing your ideas forward. Because if the leaders who are currently being locked out stop asking, the money's definitely- Yeah. And I would also just say as a call to action for folks is, and this is something I made sure to do on a regular basis, is once you as an individual do get the funding, if and when you're asked for recommendations for other folks to fund, I always made a point specifically to call out other leaders of color or other women who are leading, because I just think it's so important to be able to build the ladder, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we've been very cautious in this research and what we publish to put any onus on the individual social entrepreneur or nonprofit leader to try to change the system themselves. We do believe that change needs to come from within inside philanthropy. And there are some very sort of practical, tactical things that we think can be done to support these institutions to drive more capital to these diverse and proximate leaders. And so I, I think that, you know, when you originally asked your question, I was sort of stumped because I feel like nonprofit and social enterprise leaders are already doing so much and are taking on so much in response to the bias and the consolidation of power in the sector. And I don't really want to put anything else on their shoulders. Um, to yeah, try to I, think that, I think that that's really fair and right. And I would say for those out there who are inclined to do something, I think the point about community really resonates with me, which is like sometimes you, you need people around you who understand the same struggles that you're going through. Sometimes you need people to open doors for you if they've already managed to get through that door. And sometimes you just need to, I don't know, vent <laughs> occasionally. Well, Liza, this has been really interesting. Where can we get our hands on the study if folks want to learn more about it? 
So it's not going to be published until probably the spring of 2020. And Echoing Green will be sharing it far and wide. So I'd encourage listeners, if they want to learn more about what they're doing, to sign up for Echoing Green's email updates at echoinggreen.org. Can people who are early stage social entrepreneurs also go there to find out more about the fellowship? Absolutely. We just closed Mm -hmm. our annual application cycle, but we have a lot of resources on our website for people who are thinking about applying no matter when the application is opening. The next round of applications will be accepted next fall, but you could actually start an application now using the resources on our website. All right. So for those of you out there with a big idea and want to serve your community, check out Echo and Green and get started on those applications because it's a competitive process. How many folks did you say applied and how many do you accept again? So it's between two and 3,000 each year. And our number of accepted fellows changes each year, but it's usually between so it 25 is and tougher to get an Echo and Green than it is to get into Harvard. So get those applications ready. Thank you so much. 